I do think even at the earliest stages, you don't necessarily have to convince uh, any VC at that stage that you're the market leader. You have to convince them that you have the potential to be the market leader because you have all the other ingredients in place. And then it becomes a judgment call. That's why VC is always art, not science. There's some human element in this. There's a judgment, there's personal relationships that you build over time. And that, you know, I think it's very important um, yeah, in some sense, the network you have, but also how you've treated people. Like, you know, when we talk to founders, we do reference checks. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Here in the health tech industry, we tend to be very science-oriented. But my guest today, Nagraj Kashyap, says the science of investing in health tech companies is actually more of an art. It's contradictory, I know. But if there's anyone qualified to say so, it's Nagraj. As managing partner at SoftBank, Nagraj decides what companies are best to form long-term investment relationship with all day, every day. So, you are an entrepreneur looking for investors. This episode is really for you. Today, we talk about what he looks for in a startup, best pitching strategies, and the importance of community. Here's our conversation. Well, thanks for joining me this morning, Nagraj. Thank you, Christine, for hosting me. Look forward to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. And so I thought be, you have quite an interesting background uh, that takes you where you are today uh, in SoftBank. And if you can uh, walk us through about what's your background, what's your journey that takes you to where you are today? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. There's a long version, the short version. I'll, I'll go with the short version. Uh, I'm, uh, like many others in the tech industry, an immigrant. Um, so I landed up in Austin uh, to do my master's in computer science. So I started life as an engineer after graduating. Uh, pretty soon, in you know three to four years, I realized that uh, a new crop of engineers coming after me much smarter than me. So I moved to a business, uh, business school. I got my MBA and then uh, did a stint in management consulting. Again, I really like management consulting. I got to do different things. Uh, every three to six months, it was a lot of fun. I learned about many different industries, in, including healthcare. I did a few interesting healthcare assignments, uh, but also realized that I wanted to do something which was more sustainable for me and the family. And I switched to my first uh, venture job right then. And then uh, it was right at the time Qualcomm in San Diego, where I'm now based, uh, was um, starting up a venture group. They asked me to join. I joined as one of the founding members, and within about 12 months or so, I was leading the group. I led that for about 13 years or so, built that into a fairly large organization that operated across seven different geographies. Um, It's U.S., obviously, where we started, uh, Europe, India, China, Korea, Brazil, um, Israel. So it's it's a very large group, and we did... Primarily, I would say consumer investments uh, that included healthcare as well, medtech, uh, healthcare, all of consumer, and we had a pretty successful run there. A lot of lessons learned, uh, but had a pretty successful run. And then um, I was asked uh, to do something similar at Microsoft. 
So I switched from being an, I would say, all-consumer investor to almost entirely an enterprise investor. And I started M12, which is Microsoft's venture arm, uh, in 2016. And then when SoftBank called, I figured uh, I have one more thing to do in my career. So after doing consumer and enterprise, uh, early early stage and early growth, I joined SoftBank to do everything uh, at the later stages. So I do now consumer digital health, I do enterprise as well, uh, of course, at a later stage. So that's sort of in a nutshell, the journey along the way, lots of uh, successes, but many more mistakes as well that I've learned from that have helped me with successes um, in the future. So I'm happy to talk about anything uh, during this journey. Yeah. So um, maybe let's just dive in about your SoftBank. What does it cover? What is the focus? And and I said something about you're in the vision vision fund. What does that mean? Well, I feel like when somebody's vision fund tend to be more like the very early stage. I could be wrong. Yes, the vision fund is not an early stage vehicle. So um, I joined SoftBank in 21 uh, with vision fund two. Uh, Vision fund one was the big $100 million, $100 billion vehicle that uh, Masasan started. uh, And that sort of really changed the venture landscape. Prior to that, most of the growth funds were typically under $2 billion in total AUM. You know, I think there was a number of value firms that had growth arms and some growth specialists. But when SoftBank Vision Fund one started, uh, it was to realize Masa's vision, really that where it came from, that uh, AI and machine learning will fundamentally change the, the world. And, you know, I think he was making a bet that startups that used a lot of AI and machine learning as the core of their tech practice would result in changes and disruptions, both traditional industries existing, even new tech industries. And so that was sort of the, the idea behind the Vision Fund. No, I was not part of Vision Fund 1, so I don't typically talk about Vision Fund 1, but I wanted to give you some history. By the time I joined, um, I joined the, the Fund 2, which is why the Vision Fund 2, and that's a, a little bit of a different vehicle. Vision Fund 1 had external LPs like traditional funds and Vision Fund 1 is entirely uh, invested out of SoftBank. So Fund 2 is mostly invested? It's all all SoftBank. SoftBank, right. Okay, so what are the focus areas that they're interested in? Yeah, SoftBank is is global investing investing VC. So we have got presence, on-the-ground presence in the US, in Europe, in Israel, in uh, Japan, China, and Southeast Asia through Singapore. That's like a pretty global footprint. We have done investments in Korea as well, um, in in Brazil as well. So there's is a big footprint. And so for me, I'm part of the U.S. managing partner team, and my focus is is the U.S. as you can uh, imagine. And within the U.S., generally speaking, a third of my portfolio is consumer, consumer internet. Another third is digital health, and I would say another third is more um, uh, software, SaaS mm-hmm. software, enterprise, mid-markets, uh, small, mini businesses. So it's sort of generally divided into those. The percentages may vary, but you know, mm-hmm. those are three things I end up doing uh, mm-hmm. in my practice. But some of my partners will do life sciences investing. Some of them will you know, do a lot more e-commerce uh, there's fintech as well within the U.S. practice, but my practice is limited to the three I mentioned. 
Mm-hmm. So for the sake of our listener, many of our listeners tend to be more focused on the healthcare side, uh, digital health in your case. Uh, tell us more about what are within that space, what are the things that you are interested in and what are the things that you saw that was piqued your interest for the past few months? Yeah, so for the past about 14 months or so since I joined, we have focused what I would call primarily in preventative wellness and preventative care. So I think we are looking to back companies that are helping, you know, in the early stages as not not in the when you already are sick, but how do you make sure you don't either get sick through, you know, so more and more wellness oriented and examples of those are companies like Whoop, which I'm wearing right now, which you know tells you how you're doing every day, what kind of strain you're taking on. Uh, company like Tempo, which is an in-home exercise, uh, um, you know, I call it device machine that helps you a peloton like uh, do the workouts in in the house. And then that's on the wellness spectrum, and then on the preventative spectrum, which is you know making sure that things are caught early in the life cycle. Of any kind of disease, uh, you know, we have companies like City Block Health, which is helping Medicaid patients uh, be more engaged early on through technology, meeting them where they are, and making sure they don't get too sick. That they're the only option they have is go to urgent care or, or emergency rooms. So again, early intervention. Companies like Elemy, which provide free autism assessments and are helping match children with therapists. Uh, you know, when before we did the Alme investment, what we found was in the U.S., it takes an average of 18 months uh, to find a match therapist to a kid who's been diagnosed. And that's like too long uh, for, a developing, uh, for a developed nation like the U.S. So again, this kind of uh, uh, area is where technology can really help. That's mm-hmm. another example of more trying to intervene early in the process. Now, again, two examples, but as I said, you know, we we tend to focus more on the wellness and preventative uh, care at SoftBank. Mm-hmm. And what stage are you? Do you guys come in? Well, traditionally, our stage has been what I would call Series C and beyond. But you know, it's very hard in today's market to say what does a Series C mean or what does a Series mm-hmm. B mean. What we tend to say to to companies is, you know, typically we will come in when the company is in the stage of complete product market fit. They're looking to expand sales and marketing and sort of expand their their markets. Maybe some some of the companies are going, um, you know, they've got a good footprint in the U.S. They want to expand outside the U.S. or they've got a good footprint in some states in the U.S. where they have won contracts and they want to increase the number of states and geography they have. Uh, or they just want to grow and scale the companies. And typically those companies are looking anywhere upwards of $50 million, raising upwards of $50 million to all, all the way to 300. Uh, so we will come in at a stage where companies have the capacity to consume capital at that stage. You know, if you're starting out and you, for the next 12 months, you're looking to spend, you know, 10 to $15 million, that's too early for us in generally speaking. So I, we can say CDC and beyond is the general, I would say, nomenclature I would give. But in today, today's market, things have gotten very confusing in terms of what the labels mean. Um, mm-hmm. So we tend to say companies are looking to scale and need, 
higher amounts of capital is when, you know, we tend to intercept. Okay. And so uh, tell us, I forgot to ask you, how big is Fund 2? Uh, right now, Fund 2, I think publicly we've disclosed we are a $56 billion fund is what I can say. So $56 billion fund, which makes us, I believe, in the top three largest tech funds. That's great. Um, so you have the experience of being in a Qualcomm and Microsoft and a SoftBank and with SoftBank being probably the largest number in terms of sizes. What are the things that you see the similarities and the differences in terms of the approach of all the three different places? Yeah, the approach, um, all three places is, is, is not that much different. You know, we are still backing uh technology we're backing founders who are using technology to advance uh advance the state of whether it's healthcare or enterprise software consumer internet so it's the underlying themes are very similar i mean we obviously i was in different eras of innovation uh the era of innovation in qualcomm was was different than the era of innovation in at uh, M12 and Microsoft and now at SoftBank but fundamentally we're trying to invest in the best founders the best teams that have the the biggest total addressable market in their specific areas, and that you know I think we we tend to invest. Um, probably the one difference I would say with SoftBank and my previous areas, you know, I was doing somewhat earlier stage work. In in the earlier stage work, you can't really say that this company is definitively number one or number two in their area. At our stage, we do look for that. We tend to invest in market leaders. By the time we come in. It has become fairly evident, uh, should, like which company is leading that particular market or sector that we are investing in. So we tend to pick the companies that have already done well in their early stages, and then we provide them the you know sort of the resources and the capital to further expand on that. So that probably would be the one difference. But the underlying things are look we look for the same things that every other VC would look for. We look for great founding teams. I mean, there's a prior track record that's great. We look for diverse founders. Uh, that's a big focus for us as well. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things that every other one looked at in my previous two roles. We look at it. Here we have the opportunity to come in a little bit later so we can actually figure out which companies are you know, leading the sector and we then double down. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. It's interesting what you mentioned about the when you're early stage, it's hard to know who's the leader. And m- many of our, our audience are an early stage company. And I mean, if you have, as also being an investor, when there's so many of them, how do you differentiate yourself so that you look or you, 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 you make the investors believe that you are the market leader? Like, what are the things to stand out? Yeah, so I think it's uh, it's obviously harder. I can I can talk through all the stages, and I think uh, at our stage, it is generally easier to show you're the leader because you have the data to show. Um, earlier stages, you're differentiating based on 
your founding team, your expertise in, in the specific area, and essentially some amount of product market fit. You know, you have to show that you've basically landed customers, either if you're a consumer or enterprise customer based on, you know, and, you know, that consumer cohort is growing, it's scaling, and that there's good data behind it. Uh, you know, I think there's many examples of companies that maybe started out almost exactly the same time, but then there was one that broke out, the others didn't. Um, so I think as long as you are operating with a team that actually is working well together, you're operating in a sector or a market that any VC would look at, say the TAM is big, uh, then, and you have some product market fit already, I do think even at the earliest stages, you don't necessarily have to convince uh, any VC at that stage that you're the market leader, you're to convince them that you're the potential to be the market leader because you have all the other ingredients in place. And then it becomes a judgment call. That's why VC is always art, not science. I mean, if it was science and you know, if it was a series of uh, steps in an algorithm, then you know, I wouldn't have a job. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that would not be the best way to do things. I think it's there's some human element in this. There's a judgment, there's personal relationships that you build over time. And that, you know, I think it's very important um, in some sense, the network you have, but also how you've treated people. Like, you know, when we talk to founders, we do reference checks. If you come across as somebody who is, who's a sort of presents well, but in the background, you know, doesn't treat people well, you know, you will find out. So there is a, it's not like you can sort of get away with things like that. So you have to build this up, not only from a company perspective, but from a leader as well, how you treat people. That's a very key area for us. And it's actually even more important in the earlier stages, because if you're not the right kind of leader, well, you're not going to become the market leader as well. So I think there's there's that transition of how you can build a company culture, build leadership ability that you know takes you to the next step where somebody like SoftBank come and say, these guys are clearly the leaders, um, we want to back them. And the management team has proven that out by scaling to this point, but you can only scale if you've got the right process and culture in place. But at the early stages, you know, that's that's where some of the art comes in. Um, mm-hmm. I do think I've seen companies present the right set of things in the early stages where we have backed them. Um, some of it is also your prior experiences. You know, you talked about mistakes. In healthcare, I was early in my career, I made uh, what I would call the right kind of company in the right kind of market, but the wrong business model bet. You know, I bet on a company that was doing... Uh, continuous monitoring for diabetes. Obviously, everybody is known for many, many years that diabetes is, is one of the worst chronic problems in the U.S. and you have to monitor it. It's a, it's a constant thing for people who suffer from diabetes. And so the right approach when, when I saw it was, yeah, there's a company that helps you monitor this remotely, continuously. Your doctor will get the alerts. Uh, but, you know, guess what? The business model and the go-to-market was not the right one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we didn't actually we were there with the very Sequoia, which is a very early stage firm. Both of us made the same mistake. We had the right market in mind, we had the right uh, disease in mind in terms of what to solve, but we didn't realize that you can't go through primary care providers for this. They don't have the time for it. They won't sell, and who pays for it was not clear. So come when I went to enterprise investing a little bit, I kind of came across Levongo. And when I saw Livongo, they were actually solving the same problem, but their go-to-market model was was actually the right model. And so it didn't take me that long at that point in time to say, yes, I want to back Livongo uh, because you know they're going to employers and saying, 
this is good for your employees. So the employers actually paid them. And that was a channel that Livongo unlocked. It's the same market that uh, Telcare, which is the other company you know, I initially founded, uh, didn't work out in. Same market, same patient base, but the go-to-market model was so important. Mm-hmm. And if I had not necessarily, you know, sort of, made the mistake in the earlier, I may not have recognized that Livongo was doing this right. Uh, because initially they also had a device. And so many people are a little bit hesitant to fund companies when there's a device involved because there's hardware involved. But I'd gone through that exercise. And so I was able to, to sort of come to the right conclusion. You know, it just proved right in the, in, the, in the end as well. But I was able to come to the right conclusion that this is the right business model because diabetes still has to be solved. It's, it's a, the biggest chronic condition we have in, in the U.S. So uh, that had not changed between my two investments. The only thing that changed was the founding team that had a lot more experience in the market, plus the go-to-market model they've chosen. So when going back to the business model with the other company uh, that did not work out, I think uh, I most likely at that point, you assumed that would work out. Like, how could you avoid that mistake? Because I think with the Livongo story, it worked out, they unlocked that. But I think probably in the beginning, it's hard to know until their scales, like, oh, that worked out. Like, No, you're right. I mean, look, I think it's easier to say in hindsight uh, than at that point in time. So you're still making a judgment. I do think that's why um, in, in VC, you know, we, we always say good investors are ones that don't make the same mistake again as self-aware. They learn from it. Um, there is really no magic formula, frankly mm-hmm. speaking, but you do have to have some amount of pattern matching. And really, that's how you come across a higher percentage of winners than losers. That's all, you know, I think you're trying to basically figure out you are going to lose money in VC because it's a higher risk endeavor than public market investing or anything else. You're betting on sometimes unproven business models, like you said. So all you have to rely on is your experiences before you joined VC, uh, what you bring to the table, the mistakes you may have made and the things you learned and even if it's not mistakes, what you learn from other people, watching other people invest, what they look for, learning from them, and then making it your own heuristic, making it your own pattern, and then applying it. And I think that increases your chances that you're betting on the right place. So you're right. I, I couldn't have said that the Livongo go-to-market model will definitively work. I mean, that's not something you can make. What I could say was, I've seen what does not work. This is a huge improvement. Uh, and can, in, in my mind, scale up more. My wife's a primary care physician, so I know that if somebody comes to her office one-off trying to sell this, maybe she'll say yes, maybe she'll say no, but it's a huge amount of effort to sort of sell into one primary care provider's office. Well, I go to an employer, I instantly get scale. Uh, so I think it's inherently a better model, but you're right. I couldn't have said definitively, but my pattern matching was telling me that this was a better model that could scale more faster with less capital uh, instead of going to like the 700,000 primary care providers in the mm-hmm. U.S. or whatever the number is now. So that's not like the model that works. But, you know, I think, again, it's hindsight. So it, it looks like a good bet at this point. I think that's the best you can come up with what patterns you've developed over time. And almost things like, when you know, making sales is uh, expensive, it's costly. And I think what you were just saying, uh, the touch point, if you have a fewer touch point, it saves you money and it goes to one to many rather than one to one. I think that seems... It is. It is. You know, the, there's trade-offs. The trade-off here is uh, the sale takes longer. 
So if I'm going to go, for example, at Livongo, you know, I, I introduced them to Microsoft because I wanted, uh, we had an investment, but also Microsoft would be a big good benefit for Microsoft to offer to their employees. It took like about nine months to close that account. So it takes longer. Uh, but, you know, when you close that, you get an instant scale. Uh, so that's, I think, the trade-off in the two models. But it is, in the long run, more efficient uh, because also sticky. It's unlikely that if, if it works, that a company like Microsoft is going to churn off uh, the service and the employees are already used to, this, to the service. They're deriving benefits. How to take it away. But if I'm a primary care provider and I'm not making revenue out of this service, at some point I'll say, no, it's not worth it. But I already, you know, you as a company have spent so much effort trying to sell them and if they don't see the benefit, they'll just churn off. Uh, so I think it's not as sticky as well in, in situations where you're going after, I would say, primary care providers directly. So again, it depends uh, on the business model many times, you know, what's sticky, what type of the trade-offs in every model. There's no one model that works all the time. Uh, that's right. So I think, uh, you know, with CityBlock as well, we've seen we take on large contracts uh, and then we have to go into to the, to the patients individually to reach them individually to make sure that they're getting care. But we are not selling to the patients directly. We are selling to one provider that then sort of offloads the risk to CityBlock and CityBlock manages that by making sure patient engagement through technology is best in class. So at some point, it becomes CityBlock's responsibility to make sure these patients that they took on, uh, but they take on all the patients that scales. They don't have to go one patient acquiring one patient at a time. They acquire thousands of patients at the same time. So that's a more efficient channel, but then you still have to have the patient engagement. So even in the case of Livongo, if as an individual employee, I'm not getting the benefit, then I know at some point that nobody's using it. So you still have to, in these all these models, you still have to treat the consumer at the end of the thing really well. Because if he or she does not see the benefit, then ultimately even your customer will say, like, no, none of my customers, none of my employees and none of my patients are seeing benefit, then I'm going to churn off your thing. So it's more complicated than what I just explained, but I'm just saying that there's multiple constituents that you have to take care of during this process and make sure they're happy and and engaged and continue seeing the benefits uh, once you've sold into them. Mm -hmm. And going back to what your comment earlier, when you do uh, investment, you check reference. Uh, one of the things you said, like are you, how you treat people, do you treat them nicely? Why is that important? Well, it's, you know, it's a, you, you realize that when you do an investment at any stage, um, you're doing an investment in a company that you will be with for, call it a minimum of, four years to, to maybe 10 years. Um, you're in the boardroom, you're working with the founders and the management team. You will go through ups and downs. There is no such thing as a straight line. I have been in many successful companies uh, and I was, uh, we were seed investors in Zoom, which you know uh, is, is a very good story, but none of these companies is a straight line. And when things are going well, then it's all good. When things are not going well, that's when, personalities, how you treat other people matter. Uh, if you're not equipped to do that, you're not going to be able to navigate in a manner that brings along all the parties that are required to support you during a time that is not working out well, whether it's the market conditions, whether it's your specific customer base is getting hurt, or, it, or you're having you know other issues. 
You need your employees to come along with you and support you. You need the rest of the management team. You need your investors and your board. And if you're not somebody who can bring all of these constituents along, you will not be successful and not get through the tough times that you will will always face. As I said, there's no straight lines in, in venture. These are long journeys. And so you need to work with people that actually are, I would say, in some some manner can treat you well and you treat them well uh, and they treat everybody else around them well. If you don't do that, then it's, I call it life is too short. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to work with people that uh, are, are not sort of at least have share my ethos, share my values. That's when everybody's different. But from my investing style, because I view this as very long-term relationships, you have to have a little bit of a match on, on that front. Yeah, I, do, I don't want to be... Um... I mean, I, I totally agree with you. And I think life is too short to work with people who are not nice people, who don't treat other people respectfully and well. And then you hear the story about Steve Jobs, right? Where, how how he treats others and that he becomes successful. And sometimes it gives the wrong message to the young people. I felt like, oh, you can be really nice to get what you want and then you become successful. How, what do you say to that? Well, I think there's, uh, I would say there's many, many examples in history of people who have uh, who become successful despite not being, I would say, nice people. It's it's not it's not a path that you can't take. I'm just saying that it's not a path that I'm there to support. So I think there's, I think there's a, I would say, capital that can be put behind any kind of personality, any kind of venture. I'm just talking to you, like if you come to pitch me. Mm-hmm. then I'm going to be looking for some things. And I'm, you know, it doesn't mean that every VC looks for the exactly the same thing. That's why we are all different. We have different perspectives. And that's healthy, by the way. I do think there's not one size fits all for anything in, in venture. And having such a diverse set of capital providers means that you will find your best match somewhere. And and that's all I can say. Like, if that's that's my philosophy. It doesn't have to be, it's not... It's not a right philosophy. It's just my philosophy. And so I will say that if you, it does help you to, I think, find capital better. I think it's probably a bigger pool of providers of capital that will optimize on personality and fit uh, than there is where I will definitely fund a company or or founders that have uh, obvious issues from how they treat people. I think you'll find find people to fund you, I'm sure. But I think the pool of people is is less. Mm -hmm. So I know we are running short on time. I just, I also want to uh, ask, you can all learn from mistakes that other people make um, and success that other people make as well. Um, you, you you know, being in the ventures, you've seen a lot of the company are successful and companies that are, you know, not successful one. What are the common challenges that face them in the companies that fail that they cannot overcome? Yeah, no, I, I, as I said, some companies fail because the going in business model or the go to market is just flawed. Like I gave the example, um, and I have also seen companies in in my portfolio that have have what I would call almost everything right, uh, whether it's the product is right, the you know the people are good. I think the the market is there. Timing is bad. Uh, timing is a huge part of it. I know I uh, was at Qualcomm when we were in the early days of smartphones, when smartphones were not prevalent. We funded at least a couple of companies at that time, which some iteration of those have become very successful in the last five years, 
but at that time, we were too early. And so there's so many factors that come into play here that when you learn from mistakes, you do have to look at other examples. And if you're starting a company, you look at our other examples of analogs sort of you know, had, had everything right. And then you have to also figure out, you can't, you can't time everything. But you have to know that, you know, I think in some cases, if the timing is not right, then do you change course? Do you change course uh, to do a little bit of a different pivot to a different product, to a different model uh, until the time is right? In some cases, you can buy time. In some cases, you can't. Some of the companies I funded, we couldn't buy time. Uh, the market wasn't ready. Consumers weren't ready. It just is sort of out of your hands. And then, look, I think some companies will fail because none of these are right. They're, they're, the, the team didn't work out well. There was The founders didn't get along. Uh, the market didn't realize what, uh, you know, there was just a lack of uh, appreciation for what the company is building. There's so many pressure points and things can go wrong. Uh, but learning from history is, is the best way to at least try to maximize your chance of success. Because in our world, there is no such thing as a guaranteed success. So you have to be able to be a student of history and look look back and see what what things have done. Now, look, you can't, since you're charting a new course, there won't be a blueprint. Many times founders are saying doing something that nobody else has done before, but they can relate back to experiences from others. That's why I think the Valley ecosystem is so powerful because you have a number of people who have been there who act as mentors. I talk to younger founders, first-time founders, and one of the best things they have done uh, that I really appreciate is they've built from very early on a strong network of mentors that can help them in different areas. Is my go-to-market right? Is my business model right? Am I hiring the right kind of people? At what stage of the company am I hiring the right kind of people? When I am at 10 million in sales, this is the best VP of sales I have. But is she going to scale when I'm at 100? And so the good news is you don't have to know all the answers. You can study some of the mistakes, but you also have a network if you build the right network. And I've seen people be very generous with their time, frankly speaking. Uh, folks who have been successful in the past, you, you have to find their way through them, but you build your network, you get advice. You don't rely on one data point, but by the time you have a good network, you have multiple data points that you can rely on. And that, again, helps you maximize your chance of success uh, because, you know, you have... Nobody has seen exactly what you're trying to do, but everybody has seen some parts of what you're trying to build and you you take from that and you, then you charge your own course. And um, I think, you know, building your network, building that relationship is important. What advice do you have for people who's just starting and especially somebody who is technical founder to build that relationship? What's the best way to do that? I mean, building a relationship is almost... You know, I tried to teach that to my kid, and, you know, for all the friends that he has. And like, I think it's so important. Some people love it more than others because some people gravitate towards that. And for some people are not, doesn't come natural to them, but, but that is so important, right? And how, how do you do that? Do you have like a framework? I, I think my, my, my biggest framework for doing that uh, or my career is, Again, it's kind of hard to say when you what your starting point is, but you know it it does come with one of my core philosophies, which is it does not matter uh, who the other person is, what time they contact you. If you are nice to them, you treat them well, you hear them out. You can say no, 
that's fine. No is a perfectly right answer. But you tell them, no, I can't help you or I can't fund you in any given point in time. I built a very, I would say, good network by always giving some time, some of my time. And I think what I've realized is over time, I can call on those people and they will return the favor. So what you want to build a relationship is you don't expect something in return that day and you don't expect something in return any day. But if you have treated them right, you've given them the time and you help them when you when you had the opportunity, at some point they will help you. And I think that's been very successful for me from a network perspective. I have friends who I've built relationships over 15, 17 years where there was no expectation that there would be anything returned at that point in time when we had the first interaction. But we have built up trust. Uh, you do you do things right by them. And those relationships really, really come in handy um, as, as you sort of progress in your career, both as a VC or as a founder. I think as a founder, you have to be more deliberate, though. You have to do that a lot more deliberately. As a technical founder, it's harder. So that's why co-founders are for. Uh, you have to team up with a good co-founder, um, I think, who may be better at that part of uh, the process. Again, you have to pick and choose areas where your superpowers are, and then somebody else you can team up with where they are better at it. And the combination uh, has to sort of work in all those areas. I mean, it's so important, relationship. and also make you feel good to live in this world when you have a good relationship with many people in your life, I think, uh, whether it be a, starting a company or not starting a company. Okay, I want to have one last, last question. I promise this is my last question. What uh, advice do you have for entrepreneurs uh, if they want to meet with you or get funding? Well, in your case, it's like you're much further along, I guess more like looking for funding from an early stage investor. Yeah, look, I think it's it's what it's it's same with me also. I mean, it's I don't think it's any different. It's like if you I tell people you found us as long as you've done the homework of figuring out you know why you're meeting this particular VC. Now, look, you can always send uh, your your pitch deck to fifty people and hope that one or two respond. But I think the better way to do it is understanding your audience. Why are you meeting a specific partner in a specific firm? What can the firm bring to you? What What do you think they will see in you that they have? What is the pattern that you know? I think they have done in the past that you're going to sort of also fit into that uh, a little bit. You always have some outliers, but you got to fit into at least what they fund. You can't go to a consumer, you know, VC with an enterprise software pitch. So these are small things. But you know, when I was at Microsoft, people used to come pitch to me uh, as M12. I used to say, look, you, you have to do your homework. Can me as a VC representing Microsoft help you in what you're doing? And if I can, if I have a specific edge there and you want that help, then that's a great match. It otherwise, you know, may not be a good match. In SoftBank, it's a little bit different. You're looking for growth capital. Don't come to me if you're looking for $10 million because it's at that point in time, I'm not the right fit for you and you're wasting your time, potentially wasting my time as well. At the early stages, same thing. There is so many VCs now, but it's incumbent upon you to do the hard work of understanding your audience and then finding relationships, using your relationships and finding a warm referral. It is so much better to go into a, a pitch or meeting where somebody in your common network has said, he or she that you're going to meet, I recommend because you know this is a good person in, in whatever dimensions that you want to come. So it is easier to, to make that connection when you go in with 
a little bit more of a warm referral rather than come in cold. So I think, but you have to do some work on this. That's why I said like, this is like, don't try to set up a meeting without doing any homework, without getting, you know, sort of all the right things in place because, you know, maximize your chance of success in that one meeting because that one meeting will lead to the next few meetings. If that one meeting does not work out, then you lost your one chance. So timing is also important on that. Don't go prematurely. Go when you think you're in the right stage for that specific VC or capital provider, and then, you know, you'll get a better shot. That's great. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for your insight. And thanks uh, for sharing all your tips. Thank you, Christine, for hosting me. Appreciate it. Uh, And, you know, hope to uh, meet with you in person at some point. Yeah, I hope so, too. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.